0: Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a fireside chat with ACS president, Dr. Christopher Ellison, about his career and life lessons. Dr. Ellison is the Robert M. Zellinger Professor of Surgery Emeritus at the Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus. The program host is Dr. Mohsen Shabahang for the ACS Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program.
1: Uh, Chris, it is a distinct honor for me to be interviewing you tonight uh, as the president of the American College of Surgeons and as someone who I've uh, gotten to know for the past several years and uh, have had the honor of uh, co-publishing together and working on. Uh, some of the committees uh, together. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, for those who, um, for those who may not know, just in the way of introduction, um, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Dr. Ellison's uh, kind of journey, surgical journey. But Dr. Ellison uh, was the chair of surgery at Ohio State University Department of Surgery from 2000 to 2013. Uh, he was interim dean at Ohio State University from 2014 to 2016 and presently um, he is the Robert Zollinger Professor Emeritus. Um, so it is great to uh, see you, Chris. Um, uh, really what uh, I wanted to start with was your journey, um, your early early on journey as a uh, um, uh, your path to surgery and uh, what stood out to you on that path to becoming a surgeon.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Mo, and I really appreciate your comments. And uh, obviously I'm grateful for Dr. Sachdeva and your uh, invitation to participate in this fireside uh, chat. So, you know, all of our journeys are a little bit different uh, and mine was a little bit different than many people. So I I think, uh, you know, first of all, I was very fortunate to get into medical school. Uh, At the time I applied I mean, there were so many applicants in so few spaces, I was just grateful to get into medical school and, and you know, coming out of the University of Wisconsin, I was well prepared. Uh, and I went to, I entered Marquette University at the time, which was in Milwaukee. And then a year later, it changed its name to Medical College of Wisconsin, hmm. uh, that it is today. and. Uh, so I I was uh, just delighted to get in there. And then when I applied to surgical residencies, uh, you know, I interviewed at six or seven. Uh, and the one that just stood out to me was the Ohio State University. Uh, and I uh, obviously, you know, that was a connection. You know, my family, I'm the second generation academic surgeon. So my father uh was a surgeon at the Ohio State University, worked with Dr. Zollinger, described the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, uh, and, you know, they were very prolific in terms of academic work and writing, uh, and it was almost like a natural, you know, going home type of a thing when I left Wisconsin and went back to Columbus and and joined the residency there and was able to be trained really by uh, Dr. Carey and Dr. Zollinger. So Dr. Zollinger was still practicing a little bit. Dr. Carey at the time was the chair of the department. And both of them uh, played little roles in my growing up. I mean, uh, the Zollinger and the Ellison families were pretty close at, you know, early on in my life. and so I, I knew those Zollinger's and then, you know, we moved to Milwaukee when I was like seven or eight and then grew up in Wisconsin thereafter. But uh, when my, my dad uh, was the chair at, at Marquette, chair of surgery, and he had a very gifted uh, surgery resident named Larry Carey. And Dr. Carey was uh, his right-hand go-to person. For many years, uh, and and Larry and I uh, uh, became very good friends. I worked in his lab. I did his statistics for him on some of his shock trauma things that he came back from Vietnam with, and uh, you know, it just was an amazing experience. And that's really uh, what got me interested uh, to go into uh, medicine. Uh, was my interaction with him. And at, at University of Wisconsin, I studied, you know, all kinds of things, but primarily psychology, believe it or not, and uh, and, uh, and neurophysiology. So when I went to medical school, I was be- bent on becoming a uh, neurosurgeon uh, or a neurologist, one, one or the other. Uh, and as I went through uh, my time in medical school, I gravitated towards GI clearly. I mean, there was, must've been something, you know, that I was infused with as a child that I was going to be a GI surgeon or whatever, but I, uh, I loved every minute of it and it came naturally to me. And so I I went down that path, went to Ohio state and then joined the, the residency there. So that's how I began my journey. Uh, and uh, do you want to do you want me to keep going, or do you? Do yeah, you have- please.
1: I, I, I would love to kind of hear. I just want to kind of have a humanistic question. As a as as a father of of, of several, did you feel a lot of pressure? Um, you know, with, with obviously your father was very accomplished. Did you feel a lot of pressure to to match that the accomplishments? Uh,
2: absolutely none. I mean, there was no pressure uh, whatsoever. So it was just
1: a natural
2: kind of yeah. They uh, both of my parents. I was an only child. They they just wanted me to be happy and and uh, as successful as I could possibly be. So and and I I achieved both of those things. So I uh, in my opinion. So I think um, you know I I just uh, had so many wonderful opportunities along the way, that it was absolutely incredible. Uh, I came to Ohio State, uh, you know, I worked in the residency. I did two years in the lab. Uh, I did the the chief administrative resident, which was an extra year after your five years plus two years in lab. And and that was an amazing year. Uh, I mean, I really learned how to operate in that chief administrative resident year. I did 700 operations. I was on call like all the time, uh, and uh, you know, was very very fortunate for that. And then joined the faculty uh, at Ohio State, and uh, obviously, Dr. Carey, uh, I was his became his right hand person basically. And uh, when he went on a uh, he took a sabbatical and went to France for six months, France and Germany, Europe, and. I basically, he said, I want you to take over my practice. So I think I was three years out of my residency uh, and I took over his practice uh, for that period of time. Dr. Zollinger was equally uh, wonderful to work with. He really wasn't a nasty person at all. He was very, he was a gentleman. Uh, and if he didn't give you a hard time, in my opinion, he didn't care about you. So I so I think I I think he was one of those really special people, very military oriented. Dr. Carey was Navy and Dr. Zollinger was Army. And they were both uh you know very organized and uh I, I was it was a pleasure to work with them. Uh, and let me yeah.
1: ask you each step of the way, kind of what advice you would give. So to an early attending, to a young attending, um What would your advice be from your experiences in the early years?
2: Well, I think uh, a couple things. One, uh, don't take on too much. Uh, In other words, by that, I mean, don't take on really difficult operations. I'm going to talk about clinical surgery mostly here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that uh, I think a lot of times a young surgeon, when they go into practice, they get pulled in a lot of different directions and of the, all the residents that I've trained over the years at Ohio State, over 40 years, uh, I, you know, the residents, I've always give the residents the same advice. When they go into practice, they should focus on inguinal hernias, appendectomies, simple colon operations, some straightforward breast cases and maybe a thyroid or two. But stay away from the pancreas, don't do anything with the esophagus. And if you do colon operations, beware of low anterior operations because they're much more complicated. So uh, that was my advice that, that, you know, basically do common operations and do them very well because, and then you'll build a reputation and get your skills set up and then you can move on to uh, other things after that. So I I think that was a great piece of advice that that I got and that I share with uh, all my, all the trainees. And I think it, it makes sense. I think the other thing is that as young academic surgeons talking about getting pulled in a thousand different directions, I mean, uh, you know, you'll be asked to write chapters. You'll be asked to jump in and, you know, review papers and write review papers. And, uh, you know, really you know, chapters are great, but they don't count for much on your CV, and you're much better off spending time, uh, and I, I I I did not do this well, and that was writing grants. I mean, writing grants and doing lab research was not my strength. Clinical surgery was my strength and education. So I think that uh, you know you have to realize your strengths and your weaknesses and and move on from there. But I, I think you have to decide what you're going to be. You're going to be a clinical surgeon, educator, or a researcher, uh, and then focus on on. You know at least one of those areas if not two but it's very hard to be a successful surgical scientist and a, a clinician at the same time given the complexity uh, that's my opinion given the complexity of uh, surgical science today anyway
1: thank you I, I appreciate that and as you went along uh wanted to ask a little bit about your career at that stage obviously you're you're as a leader, you've been very involved in education, surgical education. But as in your career as a clinician, as you were rising, um, where did administrative work and edu- surgical education? Where did they come into that clinic? Those clinical years.
2: Well, I think uh, my first administrative role was really as the administrative chief resident. I made out the call schedules, and uh, I really didn't like it too much, to be honest with you. But uh, it did give me great access to know the residents and to to work with them. But that was also, you know, where I learned how to teach medical students. Uh, And, you know, unfortunately, uh, at the time I was training, you know, there was no formal education in how to become an educator. Uh, We basically emulated the people that taught us. So we used their techniques, we used, you know, maybe even borrowed some of their lectures, some of the things that they told us, we told the students and the residents, uh, you know, and it was kind of on the job training, so to speak. But I, I think that today it's much more complicated. And and obviously, the college has put together great courses for surgeons as educators, residents as educators that I would highly recommend. But but I was just grateful that I had an opportunity to work with fabulous residents and students uh, at the institution I was at. And then, uh, you know, I, I think the thing that really got me into administration so to speak was the business practice of medicine and the quality parameters that that we pay so much attention to in medicine and that that's really where where I kind of jumped into administration but that I was out 20 years before I really did that so I focused on clinical surgery for 20 years basically and saw all
1: kinds of so the administrative part wasn't a progressive uh, piece. It was really kind of a sudden. Well, I
2: think opportunities presented themselves. So I had, you know, you, uh, you know, you are a respected leader in an organization because you're a capable surgeon. You have good quality outcomes, uh, and you're highly regarded by the organization, and that that puts you in line to be considered for leadership positions. So I can tell you, um, one of the best things that happened to me is that I left the university after four years. I left the Ohio State University after four years. Dr. Carey went in uh, to be the medical director at Grant Medical Center, which is a large community hospital, level one trauma center. And he asked me if I wanted to go with him. And I said, absolutely. I was ready to do something different and so I went and you know before I left I met with the Dean and I said I hope to come back someday but I I really need to do something different and so I think that that you know everybody's going to have that opportunity to try something new I think during their career and I would encourage people to do it if they do have that opportunity and I, you know, it would, why it was so good for me is it allowed me to learn community practice.
1: How many years were you there for?
2: I was there for, uh, let's see, seven years. I see. Yeah. And uh, I worked at Grant Medical Center and Riverside Methodist Hospital they are both owned by Ohio Health. And, uh, you know, I was starting from scratch again. It was building a practice. It was interacting with the uh, how, the, the uh, medical staff, communicating with the doctors on the medical staff, teaching residents that rotated with us, helping uh, each other uh, do operations. We built a pretty solid group, uh, all focused on GI surgery. Uh, we I think we had five or six surgeons in the group, um, and and all of the surgeons were extremely well trained. I mean. They were the top people out of Ohio State and uh, Ohio Health at the time, and uh, you know we just we just had a fabulous time. And what was amazing and in, in in 1990, Dr. Carey was visiting uh, Paris, France, and I was sitting in the surgeons' lounge uh, one day, and he called me and told me he said I needed to learn how to do this gallbladder operation laparoscopically in 1990 and he was right and so we were in the community hospital and there was nobody in Columbus doing it so we you know we basically started doing it uh, and trained ourselves you know high quality made sure everything was all right had an IRB had it approved uh, and and took it forward and if if I was at Ohio State that never would have happened it never would have happened Do you think they
1: wouldn't have taken a chance on a new technique like that?
2: Well, I think you know everything uh, was upside down at that time. It wasn't driven by academics; it was driven by community practice. You know, and I'm, it, it wasn't driven, you know, for advancing the science. It was, it was, it was driven because they thought everyone thought it was a better way to do it. I mean, but it hadn't been proven yet. So, so we had an IRB uh, approved protocol. We did it, uh, and we reported our first hundred cases. It was published in the Annals of Surgery. Uh, Jeff Peters and I uh, did that manuscript together. Jeff Peters was uh, one of our partners, and we we had the artist from Johns Hopkins actually did the drawings for us. Uh, and you know, and then we went on to develop. You know, we had a fellowship. And we had people come in that were really learned and very gifted at laparoscopy. So that when the time came for a new division chief at Ohio state, given the, the, what was going on in our community, you know, they wanted someone that could bring that technology to them. And so I said, fine. So we went there. Uh, and here's another piece of advice. If you move somewhere, take a team with you, never go alone. Mm. Uh, and so we we uh, you know I took uh, uh, our team with us. We went to Ohio State. We moved the practices there, uh, and you know it was uh, amazing experience. Uh, we you know did all the laparoscopy. We eventually set up the MIS center, minimal invasive surgery center at Ohio State. Had a fellowship, but also all the residents were highly trained in laparoscopic skills. Had a skill center. Eventually, we, we were able to get it certified by the college. and uh, you know, so that that was just a, a fabulous work and an opportunity that presented itself because you're a capable, well-respected clinical surgeon. Do
1: you feel that, you know, just to take this, so really, you went out into the community. you learned this new technique, got it to a good place. Now you're back into academics. And as you said, laparoscopy was something that maybe it was, it went more from community to academics, whereas many things have gone the other way. Do you see uh, many innovative things in your experience that have gone that direction, or was that just an anomaly of laparoscopy going in that direction?
2: I, I think it might be an anomaly, but, you know, I don't, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, my opinion, my experience, I think it was an anomaly. And I I don't really know why, but it was, it it happened that way. Uh, you know, and I think that, that sometimes in academics, uh, you know, the faculty were more conservative and less, uh, you know, less willing to adopt new techniques. You know, for example, when endoscopy came out and was developed, uh, surgeons turned their back on it and, and didn't really want to do it. Uh, and that was a mistake, uh. You know, during my training, Dr. Carey said everybody, this is before the board, he said everybody has to learn endoscopy. And so I did six months in the GI medicine service during my training and did colonoscopy and upper endoscopy. And and now we know that when surgeons finish uh, their practice and if they go into community practice, their most common operations and procedures are endoscopy and colonoscopy. Uh, And so, you know, really, it's very important part of practice of surgery. But I I think that uh, that's just an example of how sometimes in the the academic world, we can be sometimes slower to adopt newer technologies. Now, you know, the opposite is true with endovascular surgery, which uh, is is very, uh, I think, was pushed by. Um, the academic departments more than the community hospitals. Uh, and it was you know done in a very orderly and successful way, and you know obviously has now become the the way that that most of the vascular uh, procedures are are done. Um, and I think robotics uh, is probably more so academic or at least large uh, community hospitals. Uh, are are the driver uh, with those technologies as well?
1: Chris, so just to focus a little bit on the stent as a uh, surgical leader in your chair years, um, what stands out from those years? What uh, what would you like? To, what lessons did you learn? What what were some of the leadership lessons that um, uh, you think would be worthy um, for uh, for for our participants today?
2: Well, I, I think, uh, you know, when I started, when I went to Ohio State, my goal was not to be the chair of surgery. Uh, my, my goal was to um, be the division chief of general surgery and build a, a strong division and then help the department uh, be be a great department and figure out how, how we could solve that and help the administration that was in the department do that. And then as, as time went on, uh, You know, I was in the right place at the right time and had the right creds, credentials. And, you know, people said, you know, we, why don't you put your hat in the ring to be the chair? And, you know, there's always a lot of politics with those things, but, but I was delighted uh, to get that opportunity. Uh, And I did it for, uh, you know, as an interim for a year. And then uh, the new, we had a new dean come in and. He agreed with uh, appointing me as the uh, as the chair and that came with a assignment which is really how i got interested in upper level administration i mean beyond being a chair but mm-hmm. uh and uh, at that time our practice plans were uh independent practice plans through the entire university and his challenge to me was he wanted me to merge all the practice plans into a single one. And, and Mo, I know that, you know, that that is not an easy task.
1: (laughs) It's a lot of convincing to do.
2: Anyway. So uh, I found myself in that situation and I learned uh, how to uh, negotiate um, that change and Mm -hmm. move that change through the university. It took a while, but it it took a while. but the faculty was stable and the merger was successful. And so, uh, leading a department of surgery, I not only focused on the quality and the outcomes, uh, which you know we were grateful for the discip that came along and really helped our department uh, in the quality. We had great faculty. We recruited. We identified. We kept building stronger divisions. And and then uh, you know my motto was. I'm going to hire people that are better than me. Uh, and that's how you that's how you make a good department. And so we basically worked on that. And then you know, eventually we merged the practice plans uh, and and then and then really everything took off. and And once the practice plans merged, then uh, the divisions wanted to become departments. So this it's just everything began on a life of its own. Uh, and so we created a department of orthopedics, a department of neurosurgery, a department of urology, a department of plastic surgery out of our divisions. Now, I, I, I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I wanted to do that. I could see that that was the right way to go, and I was able to convince the institution and the university once we met the university guidelines. Number of faculty, the endowment, the finances, et cetera, that we'd be able to to move in that direction. So I think that um, a lot of it for me was on the job training. To be honest with you, uh, mm-hmm. I don't have an MBA. Uh, I put in the hours working at uh, at my desk and at at the hospital and in what I called the war room, which was uh, in the dean's office where you went and had your negotiations and uh, you know helped. Uh, build the university's medical practices so i think that uh that's how i got interested in higher level administration was really it was an opportunity that presented itself and i never tried to i never tried to do anything just for me i did it for the organization because i thought it was the right thing to do but i you know i didn't do it for me because it gave me more power or more control or anything else more satisfaction it was just I thought it was the right thing to do,
1: and that's kind of brings me to my next question, which is, what was kind of the your guiding light, your your value system that guided you through leadership um, for all those years, and maybe beyond that? Um, was there a single? Um, uh, you've just mentioned kind of the concept of it wasn't for you. Um, w- were there other principles that you were following? Other values that were important to you as a leader?
2: Well, I I think the you know the primary driver was to put the patient first all the time, and you know to heal all with skill and trust. I mean the motto of the college, and so that that was uh, ingrained in me from the time I was a mid level resident uh, that that's the primary consideration for a surgeon. And I think that that in terms of leadership, I think. Um, You know, basically, it's to me, it's common sense things. It's treating others well, common civility, providing respect, providing a safe environment. uh, Listening more than you talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, so I mean, how I've just seen so many leaders just talk so much that they like I am right now. I'm probably talking too much. But but, this is your time to talk. This is perfect. You know they they talk so much that they just put everybody off and they they don't hear all the great ideas that are coming out. And so you know early on, I learned that you know if 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 I just listen more, I'll get so many great ideas that we can grow and help other people develop. and and, and so that that was a, I think, a very important lesson. And then I also learned that you have to re- reward people, and it's not always about the money. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, giving them opportunities uh, and recognition. And so if you do that, you can build a team that is, is much more successful in an organization. And then, you know, things, you know, a lot of the things that happened along the way and on, on my journey, I had no idea they were going to happen. Uh, you know, we, I, you know, we identified researchers that we hired. We developed a model where, you know, we were a clinical organization that was our primary, we were known for clinical surgery. And I said, well, you know, we can't, we can't be an academic department on clinical surgery alone. So we have to come up with a model Mm -hmm. to support education, to support research and clinical surgery. So we developed educational programs, leaders in those programs, uh, and that they, they interacted with the students and the residents. And then we developed our core pods of a research effort. Um, so, you know, in transplant immunology, cancer, uh, molecular biology. We developed labs around those areas, hired PhDs to do that, and linked the PhDs with the MDs who were doing the clinical work uh, in that area. And, you know, it took off. Uh, and uh, the model work, We were very successful. Thank goodness. Um, a lot of people benefited from it, including the university and a lot of patients.
1: Thank you for sharing that. That's one that, you know, as, as uh, you know, I want to make sure that I leave time for, um, you know, your experience of the last year, uh, which I'm sure has been a significant experience as the president of the American college. Um, so I want to ask you how, how has the year been, um, what have been some of the highlights of this past year, uh, and, and and where do you see? Uh, we'll get to where do you see the direction of surgery in the college? But first, how's the year been, and what what have been what stood out for you?
2: Well, I, I think yeah, it, it was a it's been a fabulous year, and I I wish that everybody had the opportunity to to do this. Uh, it's wonderful uh, representing uh, the largest uh, surgical uh, organization. Uh, in the world. uh, And as, you know, basically representing the American College of Surgeons as their ambassador, basically, when you go to the international meetings or you go to the chapters or you speak uh, at a variety of different venues. So I went on 20 uh, trips this past year. I actually started uh, in uh, July and August of 2022 as the president-elect. I went to the Arkansas chapter of the American College of Surgeons. Charlie Mabry asked me to go there. Uh, and then uh, Era Feinstein asked me to go to uh, the Arizona chapter in August. Uh, Arizona in August, I would not recommend. It's a little warm. But actually, I was there during the monsoon season. So it, it rained so hard that the roads would get washed out. But it, it was a wonderful thing. And and, and during my trips, I've been on five, I went to five international trips and the rest were uh, either chapters or uh, some named lectures at, at universities. So I think that um, the thing that I learned is that surgeons throughout the world, no matter where, are committed to the values of the college. Uh, to heal all with skill and trust, to our professionalism, to promoting uh, the highest quality of surgical care for our patients, to measure the outcomes and to treat our our patients with respect, dignity, and recognizing their individuality. Now, that is a true observation that I made in South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, Australia, and Egypt. And I spent a considerable amount of time at, in all of those places, not only at the meetings, but also visiting the communities uh, and seeing how the surgeons cared for the communities. And let, let me give you some examples.
0: Please.
2: So uh, the Philippines, uh, I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you know how many islands there are in the archipelago of the Philippines?
1: No, I uh, no, no, I don't.
2: There, there are 7,000, over 7,000. Wow. So when you're talking rural in the Philippines, you're talking rural uh, and they're spread out and it's hard to you know, get from one part of that country to another, It's and the people there are absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the, the Philippine College of Surgeons, which is modeled, uh, templated after the American College of Surgeons, uh, they have their meeting along with the Philippine chapter of the American College of Surgeons. And they sponsored what would, what they called Surgery Day. And they had uh, such a backlog of cases built up from COVID that they, they didn't know really how to manage them. And so they had Surgery Day where they would you know, periodically, they would have a day, 200 surgeons at 200 different organizations would do operations. They started at nine o'clock in the morning at the same time. They worked till five o'clock of the day no charges for the patients and the surgeons gave their time the hospitals gave their time and they kept doing this until they caught up in the backlog and they called it surgery day and i I thought that was amazing uh, that that they did that for their community um and and the other the other thing that that i learned uh, was in australia uh that uh have you been to australia i have not no okay so I, I think, uh, you know, they treat the Aboriginal people with incredible dignity and respect. Uh, I I hadn't really seen anything like it. They, they begin every meeting with a acknowledgement uh, that the Aboriginal people took care of the land for 5,000 years. And they were honored to be able to use that land and participate. In the the future development of the land uh, as time has changed and 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 respect the Aboriginal culture and honor their their forefathers, people in the past, the people in the present, the people in the future. And if, if you look at it, it's very different than the way that that we've handled our Native Americans, for example. Uh, and and it's, it was amazing. and in fact, at the opening ceremony, Uh, They had uh, so the president opened the ceremony and then the next person that spoke was an aboriginal leader dressed in aboriginal uh, attire, uh, making a a prayer to the organization uh, and and also to the uh, Australasia College of Surgeons. So and that, you know, that was amazing. And I hope to share some pictures at the governor's meeting this year about about how that went. But I, I mean that that I had no idea that that was going to happen. Uh, and I learned so much from them and and I was always also impressed with uh, the degree of robotic uh, implementation in all of these countries, including Egypt. Uh, and so I think you know robotics is here to stay. and you know what it's I so saw.
1: Good. As you went around, you know all the countries that you mentioned. So it sounds sounds like all of them did have robotic technology. They, they
2: were all they were all involved with robotics. Uh, South Korea definitely, Japan, absolutely, uh, Philippines probably maybe a little bit less, but you know interested in expanding. Australia, uh, you know, very interested and in, in very involved there. Egypt, I mean, they're they're looking for, you know, less expensive equipment, but still they have a lot of robotic units installed in all of those countries. So I, I, uh, I was very impressed with that. But I think the thing that impressed me most is the commitment of the surgeons to doing what's best for the community.
1: So in that respect, you feel that the value, values you saw in surgeons from all of these different countries... It seems like there's a lot of resemblance, that there's a lot of commonality between surgeons from different countries.
2: And absolutely. And, I, and they, you know, they really respect the values of American College of Surgeons. Mm-hmm. And they and they uh, that's why they are members of the American College of Surgeons. They're fellows, the American College of Surgeons, uh, as because they their values are aligned with the values of the college. Uh, And, you know, we have, so the American College of Surgeons is the largest surgical organization in the world, almost 90,000 members. Uh, 12,000 of those, give or take a few, are international. So we have a large international contingent of fellows uh, uh, throughout, you know, in almost every country of the world. So I think, uh, I think it goes, the, the shadow of the college is long. Uh, and it it has impacts everywhere. Now, I I didn't get to go to Africa as some of the other presidents have, uh, some of these other places. I I was not in any European countries, although hopefully get to go in the future. But I think I was very impressed with the countries that I did visit. Um, Equally, I was very impressed with the chapters that I visited. Uh, Each one... uh, was uh, fun, engaging, uh, and you know, without the chapters, all the work is done at the local level. Yes, uh, and the chapters make the college what it is today. Uh, and because you know, when you have sixty-eight uh, domestic chapters and another sixty or so international chapters, I may have those numbers a little bit off, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, there's a lot of work being done by a lot of people. Uh, and together, Surgeons United, which is the theme of the college this year, can do a lot more uh, to promote uh, the values of the college and, and to help our, our patients. So I think I was, I mean, that, that's that been the learning experience that I had. Thank you for sharing that. And Chris, I want to ask
1: you, you know, th- you've uh, been in the surgical world since uh, since the 80s. And what, as you look backwards, Um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen? And I may ask you also afterwards, maybe a look forwards, what do you see? Um, And obviously, none of us have a crystal ball, but just both in your role as president of the American College and also as someone who's been in the surgical world for all these years. But let's first look backwards. What, what What have been some of the biggest things, changes that you've seen through your career in surgery?
2: Well, I, I think there are uh, probably four major changes that, that I've seen, um, maybe five. Um, the first was endoscopy and colonoscopy. And I alluded to that a little bit during my training. I was, you know, we were involved, all of us were involved with, with doing those procedures. Uh, and, and you know, fortunately surgeons through uh, through SAGE's basically we were able to be involved with doing endoscopy and colonoscopy. Uh, And I think a lot of that is due to SAGE's and the work of Jeff Ponsky. And then I think the other big, the the next big thing that came along was laparoscopy. So that kind of took, we've already alluded to it, it kind of took the surgical world by surprise Mm -hmm. and was really driven by the community sector. And you know, began in uh, uh, Paris, France, and then, you know, moved uh, rapidly from there throughout the world. And then, uh, you know, surgeons are, are all innovators. So basically, you get an idea to uh, uh, that uh, you you can, I, I might be able to do this operation laparoscopically. Now, once I got the gallbladder mastered, and you could see the different operations picked up after that and the technology kind of evolved based on what people needed. So I think that's the number two, I think three is endovascular. Uh, And although I'm not a vascular surgeon, I was the chair of surgery when endovascular was introduced and I was amazed. Uh, And uh, we worked with the hospital to get hybrid rooms and hire Mm -hmm. faculty that were gifted at doing endovascular procedure, obviously well-trained and, uh, You know, and then I I think from an education standpoint, uh, endovascular has now created a problem in that nobody knows how to do open aneurysm repairs. Uh, And that when an open aneurysm now comes in, it's going to be complicated, difficult to do. They may have already had an endovascular procedure and now they have a leak and a recurrence or whatever. And there's not anybody to do it. So I think that, you know, having simulation models around uh, open aneurysm repair is critical. I think the fourth is robotics. Uh, and I, I think that uh, robotics is an amazing uh, development. Uh, and we did our first robotic operation at Ohio State in 1999. It was a cardiac procedure, Rob Mitchler did it. I, it may have been a mitral valve repair or something like that. But, but you know it was an amazing operation, uh, and robotics uh, is here to stay. I can I, I can just tell you, I'm 73. I'm probably too old to start sitting at the council and learning how to do robotics. If I was younger, I would be spending a couple days a week, you know, learning. But
1: you don't see you don't see that going backwards. Obviously, there's still people who predict the demise of it, but you don't see that going backwards.
2: You know, I I don't see it because uh, I think it it's. It's actually easier than laparoscopy. Uh, The surgeon is sitting down, so it's ergonomically helpful for the surgeon. You don't get that little kyphosis uh, that most surgeons have from leaning over the operating room table. Uh, And plus you can see so well and the anastomoses are like so, they look so beautiful when you get done. And, you know, I think overall, I think, the cost may be a little bit higher. I don't know. Uh, I think the complications are probably the same. But it the overall satisfaction is greater for the surgeon to do it robotically. And I think it's a great equalizer. So,
1: kind of, and, and this is a question I want to ask you, and I apologize. I interrupted you a little bit. Okay. But just from a surgical education standpoint, so we are – So you've just mentioned four huge evolutions in your career as a surgeon. What would your advice be to surgical educators? How do we prepare learners for this massive evolution that they will go through potentially in their 30 years or 40 years in surgery? And um, what what advice would you give to a surgeon as to how do you, um, how do you, ride this ride, how do you evolve with this massive evolution that can happen, which really at this moment, we don't know what 30 years from now is going to bring in the world of surgery?
2: Well, I, I would say the advice to the, to the young learner, the young surgeon, is to be curious. Uh, and when you see something new, evaluate it and learn about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, you will know if something looks like it's going to be successful. When, uh, tell me when you saw the, your first laparoscopic colostectomy, did you say, wow, I have to learn how to do this? Exactly. So that's the kind of thing. And when the first endovascular stents were done, that was the same thing. Uh, so I don't know what's coming, what's going to happen in the future. The technology is obviously there. Uh, the robotics instrumentation might get miniaturized, maybe smaller. We may not need such big operating rooms. I, don't, I have no idea, but whatever, ha- whatever comes the way, it will be incredible. Uh, and so I think that having uh, students and learners that are capable of professional development, having professional curiosity, the ability to learn on their own is critical. And what's even more critical is to have uh, organizations such as the American College of Surgeons, be ready to pick up uh, and give educational courses on new technology when it becomes uh, indicated. Uh, so that we do not repeat the the occurrences that we had with laparoscopy, where you had, you know, all these small courses that were going on. Uh, and I think that having the Division of Education, uh, to be responsible for that, and the uh, the educational institutes is great because they that they, they can pick up a lot of these activities as they come along and provide uh, I think, really well-developed curricular based learning. So I think that curiosity and solid organizational opportunities for education and learning are are critical. Now, you know, I think I missed a big one. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, early recovery pathways, uh, uh, ERAS is unbelievable. Uh, and, and I think that that will continue, you know, we're all learning how to best apply those techniques. I'm not sure you're aware of the study from, uh, the Cleveland clinic, uh, in Florida about outpatient colon and rectal surgery. That's pretty amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I I think that, that, you know, there are a lot of things that we can learn. So it's not just technology. It's it's technology. It's how we treat disease. Um, It's, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors for a variety of different cancers. Uh, So surgeons have to be on top of everything uh, because everything's not cured with a knife uh, or might be cured through a different operation. Uh, Or might be cured with a medication. So I think surgeons have to have to know everything. It's, It's not just about the technology. It's about applying what's best to our patients. And we all know that the best surgeons are the surgeon that knows when to operate and when not to operate.
1: Chris, you know, I want to make sure I see one question um, and I want to make sure I leave a little bit of time about some of the educational activity and maybe for uh, just in the seven minutes or six minutes that we have left, I want to make sure to get to the academy and also the Blue Ribbon um, Committee that you are chairing. And I want to make sure that um, we leave time for you to talk a little bit about the Blue Ribbon Committee.
2: Great. Well, I I think uh, this is really a passionate thing. And and probably one of the most important things that I've done during this past year is to work with Steve Stain. S- Steve is the president of the American Surgical Association. And he and I last September uh, agreed at a, at a think tank at the American Board of Surgery on EPA's that we would uh, lead a uh, second Blue Ribbon Committee. And so we uh, were uh, we reached out to Dr. Satchdiva and Dr. Turner uh, and received their blessing and their participating in the steering committee, the Blue Ribbon Committee, to, to really move this out. So we so we looked uh, at the original uh, paper that was written in 2005, published in Annals of Surgery, uh, and uh, looked at what their recommendations and, you know, we found that there were a lot of things that happened and that, that the recommendations were accomplished, uh, particularly areas where we had control. But some of the other areas, uh, there was opportunities for further expansion. So we currently have a a committee that we've reestablished there. We have eight um, uh, subgroups or subcommittees. Uh, the, The total number of surgeons on the panel is 60, about 60. And we cover the whole gamut. Uh, medical student education, resident education, training of uh, surgical scientists, transition to practice, faculty development, um, uh, newer methodologies in education, including AI and simulation. Uh, We have uh, specialty consults that can help us, uh, consultants that can help us analyze and fit those items into our final recommendations. So we've been working for you know, a little, really a little over a year. Uh, and we actually did begin our formal work in January. And we have a in-person meeting at the ACS offices in Chicago in uh, November, mid-November. And we have a couple other uh, town hall meetings with the Blue Ribbon, whole Blue Ribbon Committee to finalize kind of our final documents. And then we'll make some recommendations at the, uh, American Surgical Association in April. So I think that, that we are, our, our goal is to be bold, to make recommendations. We're, we're not going to lay out blueprints for implementation, but mm-hmm. we're going to lay out uh, opportunities for improvement. How can we make, how can we help and enhance the young surgeon this training to be a better surgeon, mm-hmm. both te- technically and professionally? Uh, and I think that that we will uncover, I think, some really great ideas in this. And the group of people we put together, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but, you know, you will all be familiar with uh, with all the people that, that are involved. So that that is a major work effort. And again, it can't be done without the support of the college and the Division of Education, the academy, and the staff. Uh, really appreciate that.
1: Right thank you and in in and 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 that's going to be so for anyone listening to this that's the plan is culmination by the american S- uh, surgical association meeting in the spring
2: right in, in april in april
1: chris this has been an amazing conversation and i want to ask you any final um pieces of advice or pearls of wisdom
2: well i i uh well, first of all i appreciate the opportunity uh and uh, so thank you for your expertise in terms of interviewing, and Dr. Satchdiva, thank you for the, for the invitation. I, I greatly appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at FACS.org.